Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. In previous episodes, where we've looked at music-related events that occurred in a given year, like, say, 1991, we may have almost relived some of those events as a result of having been old enough to experience them firsthand. But if we're looking at the whole of popular music, it can also be fun to explore the periods that were formative in shaping the music that would be important years or even decades later. I've always been fascinated with the genealogy of music, going back and looking at where everything came from in terms of influence and history, like, say, uh, the history of the blues and how it started from very humble beginnings and went on to influence hard rock, pop, metal, and a bunch of other genres. It's always been interesting to me to consider the evolution of music, and that means going back in history a little bit. This week, we're not going back too far, but we are going to look at a year in which most of us were either not born yet or were too young to have experienced all of the really cool things that happened during this period. The year is 1969. A lot of things happened in 1969 that would shape music history in the years to follow, so let's get right into it. In January of 1969, the Beatles would perform together in public for the last time on the rooftop of the Apple Building in London. Before officially breaking up in 1970, John Lennon and Paul McCartney identified the recording sessions for the White Album as the beginning of the end of the Beatles. John was no longer interested in collaborating with Paul, taking offense to songs that Macca had written like Obla D, Obla Da, calling it granny music. The White Album sessions were warfare among the Beatles, who often would just go off by themselves and record their own material. And that's why you hear songs like Blackbird and Julia on the record. John said of the White Album later on that it's a record of individual tracks, that there wasn't any Beatles music on it. The story behind Obladi Oblada is really interesting, though. During the sessions, Paul claimed to have a huge hit that he was calling Obladi Oblada which was a ska-sounding song and named after a phrase made popular by a Nigerian musician named Jimmy Scott, who later unsuccessfully tried to get a songwriting credit, by the way. So Paul's taking the band through this song, night after night, driving everybody nuts with his perfectionism, and then he decides to scrap the previous recordings and start over. John, who already hates most of Paul's songs by this point, storms out of the session, furious, and he comes back a little while later, making a dramatic entrance and yelling at everybody that he's extremely stoned. He then runs over to the piano in a rage and bangs out the opening chords to the songs in a different, kind of jangly, old music hall style, harder and faster than what Paul had previously played. Then he stopped, glared at Paul in front of everybody, and yelled, And that's how the bloody song should be played. Paul stared back, quiet, furious, but not able to disagree. And then he quietly said, right then, let's do it your way. John then continues to play lead piano, and that's the version that we hear on the record. So when you hear this lilting ode to family life that is Oblati Oblada, you're actually hearing John smashing the keys of the piano, wishing it was Paul's face. And you may have noticed in the last verse that Paul makes a mistake by singing, Desmond stays at home and does his pretty face, when he should have said Molly. That error was kept in because the other Beatles liked it and they thought it was funny, because they hated the song so much. 
If you listen closely, you can hear John and George Harrison yelling arm and leg between the lines, Molly stays at home and Desmond lets the children lend a hand. Also, a George song on the White Album, Savoy Truffle, contains the lyric, We all know oh blah dee blah da, but can you show me where you are? George and John were very vocal during those sessions about how much they hated oh blah dee oh blah da, and this was George's implicit way of documenting that fact. After Beatles manager Brian Epstein died, the band needed to replace him with a new business advisor another event that would be significant in the breakup of the Beatles. John, George, and Ringo wanted to bring in Alan Klein, who had managed the Rolling Stones, and Paul was adamant that the father and brother of his new wife, Linda Eastman, should be their new advisors. Eventually, after trying to use all of them unsuccessfully, Klein was named sole manager of the band in May of 1969. Paul was not pleased and refused to sign the management contract with Klein, but he was outvoted by the other three Beatles. The Beatles would release their follow-up to the White Album, Abbey Road, in September of 1969. Band relations at that time were so strained that John wanted his songs and Paul's songs to occupy separate sides of the album. Eventually, the compromise would be that side one would contain individually composed songs, and then the second side would be this kind of medley of sorts, and that was Paul's idea. The completion and mixing of I Want You, She's So Heavy on August 20th, 1969, would mark the last time that all four Beatles were together in the same studio. Despite all the fighting, the band gathered in September and discussed the recording of the album that would come to be known as Let It Be. They decided that they wanted to do away with the Lennon-McCartney-McCartney-Lennon songwriting credit pretense that they had always used up to this point, and decided to go with four compositions each, from Paul, John, and George, and two from Ringo. Shortly after that discussion, on September 20th, John told the other Beatles that he was going to be leaving the group but he agreed that he would not make it public knowledge until after Let It Be was released. Six days after that, on September 26th, Abbey Road sold four million copies in the first three months of its release. The second track on the record, a ballad called Something, was released as a single, and it was the only time a song written by George would be issued as a Beatles A-side. People saw the album in many different ways, Some said it contained some of the greatest harmonies to be heard on any rock record, and some critics called the record hollow. Beatles producer George Martin would later say that it was his favorite Beatles record. John Lennon said that it was competent work, but that it didn't really have any life in it. Let It Be, which was originally called Get Back, was almost now finished, but unfortunately, more or less, so were the Beatles. John didn't participate in the recording of George's last song contribution, which was called I, Me, Mine. The album had already been mixed, but in March 1970, that work was rejected by Alan Klein and remixed by Phil Spector, who did a lot of editing, splicing, and overdubbing on material that was recorded live by the band, and it was intended to sound that way. Paul was livid, especially with the excessive 14-voice choir and 36-instrument orchestration put on his song, The Long and Winding Road. 
After Paul's request to have his song reverted back to the format in which he recorded it was ignored, he publicly announced that he was leaving the Beatles on April 10th, 1970. Let It Be was issued almost a month later, on May 8th, with Paul's fully orchestrated The Long and Winding Road as its accompanying single, and it would be the Beatles' last. 1969 was also the year that Beatles-obsessed murderer Charles Manson would make headlines for the unspeakably gruesome Tate and LaBianca murders. Leading up to those murders, Manson had claimed that the Beatles were speaking to him through their records, most notably through the White Album, with songs like Piggies and Helter Skelter, which is how Manson would describe the apocalyptic race war between blacks and whites he claimed could trigger by committing the killings. Manson was something of a musician himself, actually. Leading up to the Tate-LaBianca murders, he would become friendly and even collaborate musically with Beach Boys drummer Dennis Wilson after Wilson picked up two female hitchhikers one day, Patricia Krenwinkel and Ella Jo Bailey, two Manson family members. After dropping them off at their destination, he saw them hitching again and again picked them up, this time taking them to his home. He left them there and went to a recording session, returning later that night to find Charles Manson in his driveway and a number of strangers inside his home, most of them young women that he would later recognize as Manson family members. Wilson had an initial fascination with Manson and his family, and he called Manson the wizard. They became friends, and Wilson put up some of the Manson family in his home, most of them women that he and Manson treated as servants. Wilson said later that this cost him the equivalent of $750,000 in food, clothing, cars, and penicillin shots for their ongoing gonorrhea issues. Wilson saw Manson as someone with great musical intuition, and even said that he was someone that he could learn from musically. They recorded a few of Manson's songs in Beach Boys leader Brian Wilson's home studio, some of which are now available on the internet. Wilson liked Manson so much, he went to the effort of introducing him to some of his contacts in the music business to try to get him his own record deal. One of these contacts was Bird's producer Terry Melcher, who lived at an address that would come to have a grim reputation. 10050 Cielo Drive would later be rented by director Roman Polanski and his wife Sharon Tate. Less than a year later, Manson family members would murder Tate and several others at this home, being sent to that specific address by Manson. Dennis Wilson recorded a Manson song for the Beach Boys that Manson had called Cease to Exist, but it was reworked to become Never Learn Not to Love, a B-side credited solely to Wilson. Manson threatened murder when he found out about that. Later, Wilson would explain that Manson didn't want to be credited, that he just wanted money instead, which he got. Wilson claims to have given him approximately $100,000 in money and other valuables. And around this time, Manson pulled a bullet out of his pocket and he showed it to Wilson. Wilson asked what it was, and Manson looked at him and said, It's a bullet. Every time you look at it, I want you to think of how nice it is that your kids are still safe. And apparently, Wilson grabbed Manson by the hair after he said that, threw him on the ground, and proceeded to administer a pretty good beating. After that, Wilson put some distance between he and Manson and moved out of his own house, leaving Manson there. 
Manson tried to initiate contact with Wilson many times after he moved out, even leaving a bullet with his housekeeper along with the threatening message right before the murders. In August 1969, right after the murders, Manson finally tracked Wilson down and told him that he had just been to the moon and demanded money from Wilson, which Wilson provided. Toward the end of the year, Manson and his family were apprehended for numerous counts of murder, but Wilson refused to testify against Manson. To this day, a lot of people connect Wilson's subsequent downward spiral of drug use and self-destructive behavior to his fear of Manson and a guilt he felt for bringing him into the Hollywood scene. As the Beatles were nearing their end, a new band out of the UK formed in 1968. And 12 days into 1969, that band would release their debut album, naming it after themselves, Led Zeppelin, and it would change the face of heavy rock as we know it. Led Zeppelin, the album, was cobbled together before the band even signed a recording contract. It was pieced together from old blues numbers, along with some original material that they had come up with, and they recorded and mixed it in only 36 hours. Jimmy Page paid for the studio time, with some help from band manager Peter Grant, and it only cost them less than $2,500 US at the time. Page produced the sessions himself, and used some tricks that he picked up from his years of being a sought-after session musician. In addition to simply just putting mics directly in front of the amps and the drums, he created ambient sound and reverb by placing an additional mic 20 or 25 feet behind the first mic, creating a minor time lag and enhancing the fullness of the recording. And then he used a balance of the two mic recordings captured. The result was a killer record, something completely fresh, but not necessarily new. We'll get to that later. When I think about this album and what it must have sounded like to people back in 1969, I just think uh, it, it must have scared a lot of people. It was definitely a game changer. I wouldn't call it heavy metal per se, and neither would Led Zeppelin, but back then I could see how people would. It was explosive, it was loud, it was aggressive and wild. And yet, if you heard the band live, it was also very disciplined. The band was so powerful and unpredictable, but they were never out of control. The band would release a second album in 1969, simply called Led Zeppelin II. It was written, recorded, and mixed in various studios across North America and the UK between January through August. It was written, recorded, and mixed in various studios across North America and the UK between January and August 1969. A lot of it was improvised and recorded live off the floor, including that whole instrumental bit of Dazed and Confused. Production for Led Zeppelin II was once again solely credited to Jimmy Page, but Eddie Kramer engineered the record before he became a producer himself. That whole process must have felt like that middle interlude and in whole lot of love where everything's just kind of going nuts. Page and Kramer panning everything back and forth and just randomly turning knobs and pressing buttons on the console. Maybe Page felt like he wanted to sonically represent that experience with that weird interlude. That being said, it's a credit to the band that you can't really hear the uneven, sporadic landscape that they had to deal with in, in doing this recording. Varying degrees of equipment quality and resources, the unfamiliarity of all of it, 
but they did get their licks in, however. They refer to the studio that they used in Vancouver called R&D Studios as a hut. And for you sticklers out there, here's a little known fact. Cassette tape releases of the album had a different track listing than vinyl. On cassette, Heartbreaker was the last song on side one, and Thank You started side two. Now, you may have heard talk previously of Led Zeppelin having a reputation for being a little bit gratuitous with how they borrowed from other artists without providing appropriate credit sometimes. Jimmy Page has taken a lot of stick over the years for putting his name on things that he didn't necessarily have the liberty to put his name on. A lot of the material on the first two Zeppelin records was reworked from old blues standards. And my take on this is that because Page went through these songs and added a whole bunch of fresh energy and vibrancy to them, maybe he thought that he could somehow consider them rewritten. Maybe he just figured or hoped that nobody would really notice. I don't know. The fact is that it happened a lot, and he and the band were taken to task by the original composers of a lot of these songs. But you know, lots of other bands have taken liberties with songwriting credits, figuring they could get away with it. The Beatles nicked some parts here and there from people like Chuck Berry and other old blues guys. The Stones lifted stuff from Robert Johnson without giving him credit. It just seemed like Led Zeppelin were so much more brazen about it. And they admitted it in later years, but it took them being sued by other songwriters. At one point, Jimmy Page tossed the blame on Robert Plant. He was quoted in writing as saying the following, Led Zeppelin did take some liberties, I must say. As far as my end of it goes, I always tried to bring out something fresh in anything that I used. Robert was supposed to have changed the lyrics, and he didn't always do that, which is what brought on most of the grief. From their first two records, there are a couple nicks. Now, I'm not going to go through all of them. We'll go through the more interesting ones. And, and please, don't get me wrong. I still love Led Zeppelin's music, and I always will. But this stuff's interesting. All right, Dazed and Confused from the debut record was one that Page claimed he was the sole composer of, and this was not accurate. The song was actually written by a guy named Jake Holmes, who was an American jingle writer back in 1967. Holmes sued for copyright infringement in 2010, and he was awarded an out-of-court settlement. However, Willie Dixon was appropriately credited as the author of You Shook Me and I Can't Quit You Baby on the record. The track Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You hit Led Zeppelin's radar as a cover performed by Joan Baez on her 1962 record, Joan Baez in Concert. The original version, however, was written by an American folk singer named Anne Breeden in the 1950s. Led Zeppelin credited the song as being what's called traditional. And this is something that was done when the songwriter is not known and the music's been handed down. It's common to do this with older blues, folk, and jazz songs. In this instance, Baez also credited the song as being traditional. Breeden didn't know that Led Zeppelin had covered her song until the 80s, and she piped up about it, but she finally agreed to be listed as a co-author, splitting the royalties with the band. On Led Zeppelin II, a whole lot of love would later cause the band some grief. Page came up with the guitar riff, and when Plant needed to come up with some lyrics, he quoted from You Need Love 
which was a song written by Willie Dixon and performed by Muddy Waters in 1962. Dixon sued Zeppelin in 1985 and settled it of court. He's now listed as a co-writer of the song. And this is funny, Plant actually admitted it after the settlement, saying, and that was it, and Nick, now happily paid for. At the time, there was a lot of conversation in the band about what to do. It was decided that it was so far away in time and influence that, well, you only get caught when you're successful. And that's the game, he said. What's funny about this is that there were only really seven years between the release of You Need Love and Whole Lot of Love. On the Lemon song, that famous lemon-squeezing lyric is found on Robert Johnson's Traveling Riverside Blues tune, which was also covered by Zeppelin, by the way. But this one's a double dip. The Lemon song was appropriated from Howlin' Wolf's Killing Floor, a favorite song of Zeppelin's to play live. After a lawsuit, some pressings of Led Zeppelin II actually show the Lemon song listed as Killing Floor. Today, the liner notes show Chester Burnett, better known as Howlin' Wolf, as co-author. The last song on Led Zeppelin II is a song written by Page and Plant with a slow, quiet, blues riff intro, and that same riff closes the song. Those bookends are very clearly a cover of Bring It On Home, which is a song by Sonny Boy Williamson, written by Willie Dixon. Poor Willie Dixon. When challenged on this fact, Page said there was only a tiny bit taken from Sonny Boy Williamson's version, and that they included it as a tribute to him. So, people can't say it's stolen. The problem is that those bookends are much more than just a tiny bit of the track. They actually make up half the song's running time. Interestingly, on Zeppelin's 2003 live album, How the West Was Won, the band designated their middle composition as Bring It On Back and gave appropriate credit to Willie Dixon. All right, that concludes part one of our look at 1969. Next week, we're going to talk about Altamont, Woodstock, and so much more. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Subway, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.